You are listening to Killer. This is case number 31, The Black Wall Street Massacre. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. The war to end all wars had begun in 1914 with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The beginning of the war quickly pitted Russia, Belgium, France, Great Britain, and Serbia against Austria-Hungary and Germany. As the war drug on, it eventually escalated to the point where United States civilian ships were being sunk by German submarines as the U.S. tried to send supplies overseas and remain passive in the ongoing European war. America entered World War I on April 6, 1917. By November 1918, the United States, alongside the other allies, defeated the Central Powers, and following that, the cultural boom in the U.S. kicked off. It was known as the Roaring Twenties. Although the United States had collectively worked together as a country to join the Allies and defeat the enemies overseas, at home, things were still racially divided. To better understand the future events we will be discussing, you must first understand the cultural attitude of America in the 20s. In the lead-up to World War I, many African Americans began to realize that the southern United States was too racially divided, and they had no choice but to migrate north. This was known as the Great Migration. Nearly one and a half million African Americans moved from the South to the North during this period. Tensions were high and groups like the Ku Klux Klan began to regain power and try to influence a culture of white supremacy. Greenwood, Oklahoma was an area of land that had been built in Indian Territory. The area was once home to Native American tribes, but they had been forced to relocate. The tribes that inhabited the land had owned slaves, but once the slaves were freed, They integrated into these tribal communities and acquired land in Greenwood through the Dawes Act, which was a U.S. law that granted land to individual Native Americans. Many black sharecroppers fled racial oppression following the Civil War and relocated to Greenwood. Oklahoma quickly became the place where many African Americans felt safe following emancipation. The number of black townships after the Civil War was greater than 50, which was the most in any single area. O.W. Gurley, a wealthy black landowner, purchased 40 acres of land in Tulsa, which would be known as Greenwood, named after Greenwood, Mississippi. As many African Americans began to settle into Greenwood, the area quickly prospered. The money that was generated and spent in Greenwood stayed in circulation in the area for as much as five years before it left. All of this happened despite the vast presence of the KKK in Tulsa, and the race riots that had been ongoing throughout the country, including the Red Summer of 1919. We're not going to cover this in detail, but the Red Summer was a period from late winter to early autumn of 1919, where white supremacist riots occurred in more than 36 cities across the country. Most of the riots escalated to white-on-black violence. However, some African Americans fought back, notably in Chicago. The community thrived so much so that it received its own nickname. Black Wall Street. Despite the success of the community, it was still a segregated town amongst many whites-only towns. Everything was running quite smoothly in Greenwood, and the community mirrored what many white communities look like, having small businesses on every corner, salons, barbershops, banks, etc. One afternoon, Memorial Day weekend, May 30, 1921, a resident of Greenwood, Dick Rowland, a black shoeshiner, entered the Drexel building in town. He had asked permission to enter the building and use the restroom. 
After entering the elevator, the operator, 17-year-old Sarah Page, screamed, and Roland and Page both ran out of the elevator. The accounts of what happened in the elevator are not clear, but Roland was apprehended by authorities the next day. The local paper printed an article with the headline, quote, Nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator, end quote. Dick Rowland was taken into the courthouse, and while he was inside the building, the newspaper article had infuriated a group of whites, who now believe that Dick Rowland had assaulted Sarah Page. The group gathered outside of the courthouse in protest. A group of black men also went to the courthouse to protect Rowland. Some of them were armed, many former World War I veterans. Eventually, the two groups met and the tensions mounted between the two groups. Eventually, black residents backed down and withdrew back behind the railroad tracks that marked the territory of Greenwood. However, the groups began to fight and some shots were exchanged. The large group of hundreds of white men began shooting their way through the group of black men. The angry mob continued on, murdering, looting, and burning down Black Wall Street. Two straight days of attacks on Greenwood ensued, and eventually martial law was declared and the National Guard was brought in. The massacre left 1,200 homes and 35 city blocks in ruins. Initial reports stated that only white people had died in the event, but in reality, it was believed to be 30 to 100 casualties, mostly African Americans. However, that number would later be challenged, and it would be much closer to 300. The survivors moved to tent cities in the following months after the massacre. Oddly enough, following the massacre, a cover-up began. Much of what was documented in the newspapers had been removed from the archives, including the original news article that started the whole riot. Much of what was left to document the massacre were postcards. These postcards weren't your average photograph of a beautiful local spot. They depicted Greenwood on fire. Some would say things on them like, quote, Ruins of the Tulsa Race Riot, Negroes on Way to Town Hall During Tulsa Race Riot, and Negroes Slain in Tulsa Race Riot, end quote. That last one depicted an African-American lying in the street with a sheet loosely draped over part of his face. These were mementos for white supremacist groups and served as a sort of souvenir. Today, these postcards are preserved in order to remember the history of what happened over those days. Even the terminology on the postcards calling the event a riot is seen by many in the black community as a way to whitewash what happened. They view it as a massacre. Following the events of the massacre, Greenwood would eventually rebuild. But a large part of their healing and recovery from this tragic event is still not complete. The massacre left many dead, likely in the hundreds, but their bodies are nowhere to be found. They are believed to be buried in a mass grave, but the location is not known. Only two official victims were buried in the local cemetery. The survivors and their families believe the massacre was upwards of 300 African American lives. In 1997, the local government finally put together a commission to investigate the events of the massacre and try to understand everything that had happened all the way back in 1921. They spoke to survivors and reviewed the records they had. None of the survivors are alive anymore, which is why this is so important. Many of the survivors recalled trucks carting stacks of bodies around and heading out of town. Another witness said he saw bodies being dumped in Oaklawn Cemetery. The information gathered by the commission found three hot spots using radar that appeared to have strange disturbances in the soil near Oaklawn Cemetery. At the time, the commission decided against excavating and many in City Hall felt it might dig up old wounds and that it might be best to leave things where they were. However, in due time, the city has started investigating this event again. The mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum, has decided to take up the three areas that the commission noted as potential mass graves and excavate them. As the city continues its effort to heal almost 100 years later, just ask yourself, 
Where was this in our history books? Why are these stories ignored? They are a vital part of everything that is good and bad about America. And the only way to push through to progress is to open up a dialogue and attempt to work out the issues across races as best we can and move forward. Remember, we are all human. We all want the same things in life, and we all deserve the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that it's about 100 years later, and they still aren't and haven't excavated these sites to to kind of put closure on this situation, it's fascinating to watch what has been going on in this country. It's fascinating to see just how racially divided we still are, and being white, I feel super insulated and I feel like I don't really have my my ear to the ground to see the things that the African American communities are dealing with on a on a day-to-day basis and through this last Black Lives Matter protest that's still going on, it really shined a light on a lot of things that I didn't know. This was a story not a story. This was an event that happened in our country that was terrible. Hundreds of people were murdered. I never heard about it before. Was it because I was ignorant or because I was spoon-fed a white version of history where they ignored some of these kinds of atrocities? Did you ever hear about this growing up, Craig? No, and, and I'm glad you brought this up about where was this in history books because I this is the first time I've heard of this massacre. And I, that's why I was saying earlier when we started this episode, I'm really glad that we're we're taking a look at this and bringing this to light because my assumption is a vast majority of our listening crowd is from the United States, you know, based on the demographics of what we see from our listening crowd. And I, I would be very interested to know how many people out there have heard of this event. I would too. And so if you're listening to this and you haven't left us, you know, hit us up, let us know. You know, I, I'm very curious to see before this all broke out and became a thing, how many people were aware of this because it never crossed my path. And, you know, it made me kind of happy in a way because I didn't want to know that my country was capable of these kinds of things, even though we did know that bad things happened in this country. It was one of those things where it was like, wow, basically... <laughs> A group of white folks went into a black town over a news story. This is basically the the 1920s Twitter mob, except they came with weapons, you know, and they came in there and destroyed a town and then just buried bodies with no regard. The interesting thing to me about the whole story was the way they tried to not necessarily ignore that it happened, but alter the facts. So we mentioned in our story at one point, if you would go back and look at the records, the newspaper archives had clippings completely removed. So there was a photograph I saw online of a book of the archive and the article that was written about uh, Dick Rowland, who had went into the elevator and came out. The whole article that started this whole problem was completely cut out. It's gone. You can see where it was and it's not there. So they removed all these different newspaper articles that talked about this event it just they're just gone completely gone so what else in our history are we is completely gone that we're not aware of not only what has gone from history that we haven't heard of or never been privy to information wise but you said a hundred years ago this happened and 
there's not a lot of information around it or in our history books or whatever. But I like the point that you make about the press removing complete segments of what actually happened. Fast forward to 2020. Do you think that that still happens with things of, of today, hot topics for today? It's harder, but yeah. That's that's one of the benefits of social media is that you get attention on topics like this and you can not let them get suppressed. You know what I mean? So like you can continue on and continue to hammer the points home and keep going, right? And that's actually kind of what this Black Lives Matter movement is all about, really. It never died, you know, especially for the African-American community, right? Like when Colin Kaepernick really started kneeling and getting attention on this topic and pissing people off, it never went away for them. It never went away. And here we are. Proof of that. Just a few years later, we're back at it tenfold. And what do you think about this? It's There's this juxtaposition between the pandemic that's going on and this racial tension between the policing community and the African-American community. And those things ran full speed into each other at the right time where so many people are at home quarantining with nothing to do that finally it hit that fever pitch, that boiling point where people are now paying attention because they have no other choice. There's no sports to distract you. The only other distraction you have is to go to politics right now and nobody wants to be there. So you hit these two things collided at just the right time. And hopefully this gives momentum to this movement to finally make some serious progress on what has been going on in the black communities in this country and with race relations and shedding a light for people like ourselves who are white, who benefit from white privilege. You can agree or disagree with that. We definitely do. If you didn't know this event happened, that's white privilege right there because white people rewrote history right there. They rewrote it. They erased it, altered facts so that nobody would know that this happened because they were ashamed of what they did deep down inside and they knew it. It was bad. So here we are, right? It's just, it, it's a culmination of so many things. So back to my original question, what do you think about those things all meeting and heading right now at this time, this juncture and how it's affecting the outcomes that we're seeing now compared to where this was in 2016 when it all started over kneeling during football games at the national anthem. I, I honestly don't think it can be ignored anymore. I, I think a lot of it from four years ago, five years ago, it kind of went to the wayside, not for the, not for the black community, but just from, like you say, we were kind of shielded from it and all everything collided in 2020. 2020 has been an interesting year and I, I can't wait to see how, history books are written around this year with with the pandemic with the black lives matter movement unfortunately i think the, the two are going to continue on you know for quite some time the pandemic is not going away things are creeping back up numbers are climbing states are being forced to close back down texas and florida they're going back under you know somewhat of a quarantine status because numbers have you know climbed out of control i, I don't know if this has to do it obviously has to do with things reopening, people getting back out into to their everyday routine, going to restaurants, you know, getting back out in public. There's arguments on both sides of the fence. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. But but where I'm going with this is 
we've seen lots and lots of very large protests too and lots of people coming together to try to speak up and you know voice their opinion about all of this oppression that is happening again and again and again and it's like a double-edged sword these large these large groups are gathering to protest but they could in fact be harming themselves you know from a healthy standpoint because the virus is still there the pandemic is still there and they're not out there to they're out there to have their voices heard not to they're not concerned i mean obviously there's still some concern in the back of their minds about things spreading with coronavirus and this and that but it's kind of like uh, an evil side effect to the whole thing i think I think that it's inadvertently being spread and the numbers are climbing for some of that activity too because there, there are large gatherings of people close together in close proximity. You can still wear masks. You can still do everything you can do to, to avoid the spread, but it's going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm just glad this shined a light on on this topic again because quite honestly, I'm very insulated from the world period. You know, I do a lot at home before this happened. I don't go very many places and things like that. My my pool of friends is small and they're not diverse at all anymore. Used to be back in school, I had friends from all over. Now I work with a lot of different people from various backgrounds and ethnicities and I love it. I love talking to people who are so different from me and seeing like their take on the world. That fascinates me. Some people are offended by that. I've always enjoyed it. And you know, quite honestly, I'm I'm glad this happened in a selfish manner because it's forced me to 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 be a little introspective on race and how I've viewed it and basically calling myself out for not paying attention enough, not spreading the word, not talking about it, not calling out friends or family who say things or do things that are bigoted or racist. I think now's the time, you know, if you have grandparents who say really racist shit to you to, to call them on it and be like, what are you doing? Like, you're a human. They're, you know, the, the people that you're talking about are human. Like, what, what are we doing here? Why are we fighting? Why do we like to fight with each other over nonsense? What color of your skin pissed you off? It pissed you off because someone's color is different than yours. What the fuck's that matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. So what are we doing here? What's the point? You know, have you ever seen a happy racist? No, honestly, no. I mean, me either. Me they, either. they can put a smile on their face and pretend to be happy, but I mean, that's something you can see right through somebody. You can see yeah. that yeah, this person is really just a. They're unhappy people. Just period. a very unhappy person, right? So, what the fuck is wrong with you? You need to fix yourself. Maybe it'll make you a little happier. Maybe you'll go spread some joy in the world. Maybe you'll enjoy things more. But, dude, I've never seen a single person in my life who is racist who is actually happy not one i know several they won't say they're racist but they're racist as hell just never never in my life have i seen it i, I can relate to that for sure and I, I know we share personal stories on this show a lot mm-hmm. and just where i i grew up my hometown and the, the high school that i went to there were all, through all four grades of the high school, there was probably a thousand students on that campus when I was there. The only person of ethnicity in that school was exchange students. Call that as crazy as you will. 
there there was not one African American student in that school. And we had two exchange students from, I believe, one was from Mexico and one might have been from Germany at the time. Wow. Yeah, I I share a similar background here. Like I said, I'm super insulated, right? I live in a largely white rural community, and at my school, probably about 800 kids, maybe a thousand, somewhere between that. We had a handful of black kids in every grade. I never really thought anything about it. That's just, I've always lived in the same town. It didn't, like, I didn't see it as weird. Um, Growing up, one of my best friends played baseball with me. He was black and his family lived in town and going over to their house and hanging out and staying the night over there. It was a culture shock at first. It was just different, but I thought it was cool. His family was from Alabama and they were like, you know, deep South and, Man, the way that they spoke in the house and everything, it was just something to be seen. And it was hilarious. And the energy that they brought was so different from anybody else that I hung out with and the way their families ran. And it was just interesting to me. It was always so fascinating. Looking back on it, it was like, it was a good experience because I didn't know that until I went and stayed at his place and hung out with him in his house with his family to see how they operated. And they were an awesome family. And it was just, it was super interesting. And it started to, I think, shape my opinion of people overall. And then you go on to college and I was in a diverse city in college. And then there you go. You're with all these different people from different backgrounds and you can appreciate them and you don't really think about it. And let me just say this real quick before we wrap this up. If you say that you're colorblind, you're full of shit. Everybody sees race. And I think we've talked about this before on the show, but everybody sees race. It's just a matter of, do you see it and view it negatively or do you see it and acknowledge the differences and celebrate it? Because there's two different views, right? Like to pretend that you don't see somebody's color is just total mockery of that person in my mind. It's do you see them for who they are and the cultural experiences and backgrounds that they bring? Or do you see them as a color and have negative connotations of those people because of things that you've been told or read or heard or brainwashed to believe? Yeah, that that's a great observation. And I'm just sitting here thinking about your comments about be, living in an insulated area. Uh, I'm kind of in the same situation. I mean, I live in a, a more div- diverse town now, you know, than I ever did growing up. But I can't imagine on a, a day-to-day basis where something as simple as going to the store or just driving to work, you have to worry about a police officer following you, you know, every time that one gets behind you, they're going to run your license plate just to make sure there's no warrants or no outstanding citations of any sort. But just to take that a little bit further, I've always thought, isn't it crazy how you get your driver's license or you apply for a job and you have to identify your race? Mm -hmm. How many times have you been traveling down the road in your car, you know, not doing anything, Following speed limit, you know, obeying traffic laws, doing whatever. And that police officer runs your license plate and says, oh, hey, look, it's Craig. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's a white dude. We'll, we'll turn off on the next road. Not a big deal. Yep. It's not so much the same situation for somebody. Let's say I'm a black man and I'm driving to the store just to get groceries and the same thing happens. Do you think that police officer takes that next right turn? Or do you think he follows you to try to antagonize you into doing something? It's not going to happen every time, but it it surely is going to happen more often than not, simply due to the fact that they maybe they can't see in the car. 
but they know that your race is denoted on your driver's license and it's part of your registration. It's just like you saying people say they're colorblind. It's, it's bullshit. It truly is. Oh, yeah, 100%. And to tack on to your point about, you know, the police following black people specifically and pulling them over, you know, for bullshit reasons and stuff like that, that's been going on forever. And the community has been speaking out forever. And white people have chosen to ignore them for whatever reason, right? It's just inconvenient. And I'll speak for myself. Honestly, I don't know what I would do besides talking locally. But now that I have an audience to speak to at some level, I feel like I should. And I'm sorry if people are offended, annoyed, or whatever, or want to get off this topic because it's all that's going on in the news. And we will. We will. Like next week, we won't be doing another one of these. We'll be doing something else just to be different. We're not going to hammer this home and belabor the point. But I do want to bring light to these topics because I think it is important uh, that we all understand what's going on in our world. It's our world that we all live in, and we should all be informed. Now, what you do with that is up to you. But I think it's important. And I think it ties into what we talk about. This is true crime. This massacre is true crime. It's no different than a Jim Jones cult <laughs> and having you know the mass executions there and those kinds of things. This is one of those. But before we wrap, I do want to share one story with you about kind of that driving, getting pulled over thing and how I felt. I, I went, my wife and I, when we were dating in high school, we went to a drive-in movie we brought our dogs with us. We were hanging out, whatever, having a good time. We pulled out of the drive-in and we're in a, like a super white suburb and we leave. We're heading back home. It's like after midnight, not more than a minute after we pulled out of the parking lot, I get pulled over. What was I doing? Nothing. I got pulled over. The cop comes up. He wants to see if we're drinking. That's what he's trying to do. But he pulled me over and said my license plate light was out. Guess what? Got home, looked at my license plate light. It wasn't out. It was working fine. So made up a bullshit story to pull me over just to see if I was drinking. But he let me go and he was nice to me, right? So I didn't deal with anything crazy in the encounter with the actual officer. He was fine. He just literally peeked his flashlight in the car, looked at us, saw we had two dogs were sitting there and just like left, let us go, right? That doesn't end the same way if you're black. You're probably pulled out of the car for a few minutes. You might even get handcuffed for some reason. They might ask to search your vehicle. So the white privilege was that he just let me go. but. It was similar in the sense that, why the hell did I get pulled over? I got profiled because I came out of the out of the movie where people are probably known to be drinking in their car and then driving home. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't speeding. I was staying in my lane and my license plate lights were not out. You know, so those little things happen in the African-American community all the time. And then they escalate once they get pulled over. And they deal with it so much that there's tension just from that because it's happened so often. And they have no way of getting around it. And they've been trying to tell us forever that this is going on. So I would ask that we just try to be aware of what's going on. And if you can, don't let people be racist. Just don't let it happen. Make those people feel like idiots because they are. That's it for this, uh, this episode. If you would like to follow us on social media, please do. Don't forget to uh, rate and subscribe and most importantly, everybody, stay safe.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.